Welcome, everyone who may or may who may be listening. I guess we wouldn't have anyone not listening. I'd need to welcome. This is the second episode of the Paleo Protestant podcast, where uh, an Anglican, a Lutheran, and a Presbyterian get together to talk about church life, uh, denominational life, um, and and it's a chance for those who are not in uh, churches coming out of the Reformation background directly to th- hear how Protestants who are not evangelical or mainline think about uh, church life, uh, theological life, at least in the United States, if not beyond. Um, and just to keep everyone in mind, the Anglican in our, in our midst is Dr. Miles Smith. Uh, the Lutheran in our midst is Dr. Corey Moss, and I round up the bunch, Daryl Hart, the Presbyterian. So we want to talk today about um, theological education. There was a piece at uh, Juicy Ecumenist, I believe that's the name of the website, um, on Anglican priests or people preparing for the Anglican ministry. Um, and I guess Anglicans do not have their own seminaries in the United States anyway. And so there are certificate concentrations for tracks in Anglicanism. And the, the article mentions schools such as Asbury, which is Methodist, Duke, Candler, both of all those are Methodist, Reformed Theological Seminary, Drew, Gordon-Conwell, and Northern, although I'm not sure what Northern, if that's Northern Baptist or, or not. But they go on in this article to talk about the Certificate of Anglican Studies, which bridges the gap between a pastor with solid theological training and ordained clergy. Uh, Kristen Oliver, the director of missions at Wisconsin's Neshoto Theological Seminary, said that it is a common choice among seminarians who hadn't been exposed to the Church of England until after finishing their MDiv. Um, so, Miles, I don't know if you want to talk about this a little bit and where the training uh, that you see among Ang- Anglican priests in your communion, and is there ever a chance that they w- Anglicans here would form a, a seminary? There is a mention there of Neshota House, obviously, um, and there's also Trinity in Western PA. I don't know if they are fit formally with the Anglican, Anglican communion, uh, they used to be also serving the Episcopal church. And I don't know if they actually had to make a choice. Yeah. So I'll, I'll answer the first part of the, of the question um, separately from the second. I think what's probably interesting is that not having any denominational affiliated <laughs> seminaries presents kind of a unique um, opportunity for ACNA in that we're able to get a broad variety of guys from a wide variety of backgrounds who are interested in what it is to be Anglican. That's good. The weakness of it is perhaps though, that we don't have any institutional continuity with what came before. Um, the LCMS and Wells, for example, have uh, these, you know, very tight institutional affiliations between the Synod itself and their seminaries, and ACNA lacks that. Um, the second part of the question, would ACNA ever create its own um, 
seminary. I I think that's probably a hope. I'm sure what's interesting of out of um, the the three groups represented here, ACNA is a little bit more like the the OP in the sense that it's small um, and we don't have big denominational pockets, um, mm-hmm. which is probably one of the strange things because Episcopalians are known for having deep denominational pockets. So uh, as of, as of right now, there isn't a denominationally affiliated seminary. Uh, A lot of guys come out of Gordon Conwell, um, the two priests at my church. One is a Gordon Conwell uh, alum and another one went to Westminster, California. So we have a, a variety of dispositions too coming uh, into holy orders and that's uh a ble- a, i think a blessing and a curse in its yeah. own way um so cory it seems to me that lutherans are the most um uh well it on the outside it seems like if you want to be a lutheran pastor you go to a lutheran seminary period um, it, yeah that's, that's i mean that's typically the case I mean, we, we, we have made alternate arrangements for certain exceptional cases. Um, but yeah, at least historically, uh, if you wanted to become an ordained Lutheran pastor, um, you know, at least in modern history, uh, you would attend a denominationally affiliated seminary. And, uh, you know, unlike um, you know, the Catholic seminaries, for example, in the United States, um, we don't have lots of small seminaries, geographically uh, diverse. Um, we, we've got two, um, each of which historically has been quite large. Um, and then we've got a couple of smaller locations. So one of our universities in Southern California actually has a, uh, a track for ordination. So the education takes place on the campus there, but then sort of qualifying exams and certification for ordination takes place through uh, the seminary in St. Louis. Hmm. Hmm. I mean, do you think that, um, and in the Presbyterian world, I mean, sheesh, we have (laughs) how many seminaries that are reformed, but our our parrot church in the sense that they're non-denominational requirements are for faculty and trustees to be officers in in Presbyterian Napark communions, these are reformed and Presbyterian churches that are not, that are outside the mainline um, churches. So there is that kind of ecclesiastical oversight and connection, but there's, I don't know of any real giving directly from the denomination general assembly mm. or presbytery to uh, those, denom- those seminaries. And I mean, those seminaries, I, you know, the OPC, for instance, is so small, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, that the, the student body at those seminaries would be in the minority. It, it, at some points, it may be no more than a dozen Orthodox Presbyterian students out of 100, say, or 150 uh, at, at, say, Westminster, California. Um, and re- reform seminaries, um, the ones in uh, – Jackson originally, then branches in Orlando, Charlotte, Washington, Dallas now uh, have closer ties to the PCA. Um, but again, there's Jackson is sort of at, was there at the founding of um, the PCA when it was largely coming out of the Southern Church. Covenant Seminary is another one that 
came into the PCA through a merger or a union between the PCA and the RPCES, a small um, Presbyterian church. So Presbyterians have so many options, but it means too that there's not necessarily consistency of product. And I wonder if, if Lutherans have more consistency of product and, and what is the upside and the downside of that? Yeah, that, no, that's a really good question. So I, I, I'd immediately want to answer that with, with a yes, but then I'd immediately qualify that. So with, with some ex- exaggeration, um, the way Lutherans in the 20th century, for example, have talked about our two seminaries here for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, um, the, the one that is currently in Fort Wayne was originally founded as the, the quote unquote practical seminary, whereas the one in St. Louis had the reputation of being you know, the, the academic seminary. Ah. Um, and so that reputation continued for a time. Uh, in more recent years, uh, the, the seminary in Fort Wayne had had a, a reputation as being the, uh, what shall you say, you know, the, the more confessional uh, and certainly the more liturgical seminary. Um, so, for example, in the 1970s, there was a, a, a huge blow up at the St. Louis Seminary with a kind of you know, creeping liberalism uh, in some of the departments and across the faculty at large. And so that's that's one of the reasons that we have you know, sort of insisted on maintaining at least two seminaries that because you know, if things start to go wonky at one, we've got to, <laughs> we've got to back up. Um, but but on the whole, yeah, I think that that congregations and laity um, would say that there is a kind of consistency in the the production, in the education, uh, in the theology of the Lutheran seminaries in general, and then probably an even greater consistency in the the men coming out of the same seminary, mm-hmm. uh, either one of them. Um. So is it ever is it ever the case? Are are there any LCMS pastors who've gone to Gordon Conwell or to Fuller or to Westminster or Trinity Evangelical Divinity School? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are. So that this is the the kind of exceptional route. So we we do have you know guys who have you know either you know, done a four year degree in theology not intending to be ordained. And then they realize, Oh, actually I, I want to be ordained or men who have actually studied for ordination and perhaps even become ordained in some other church body uh, who decide that they want to become associated with the Missouri Synod. And so we, we've typically got what's, what's called a, a, a colloquy route. Hmm. And that, that can vary from time to time and place to place, but it typically involves um, a, a sort of condensed course of study at one of the seminaries um, or at, you know, an affiliated seminary with the Lutheran church, Canada, or in the evangelical Lutheran church in England. Um, and then the, the exams for certification. So we're not, we're not going to make them relearn Greek and Hebrew and probably not going to make them relearn uh, swaths of church history but uh, we'll want to put them through a course in the Lutheran confessions and some of the distinctives of Lutheran systematic theology. I mean, not to, not to um, get into too much dirty laundry, but do any <laughs> of those guys eventually 
have they gained reputations for oh they didn't they didn't study those dogmatics or they didn't get that professor for you know modern church history or I mean, I say it's just to give the, the example of the Westminster world that I know and worked in, and I'm a graduate of Westminster, Philadelphia, um, just for an MA. Um, you know, the Vantillian apologetics, Cornelius mm, Van Til, yeah. Dutch American uh, apolo- apologist. I mean, we even have in our church order in the OPC that as, as part of the uh, guidelines for what should be part of the curriculum, seminary curriculum. Part of it should include Vantillian uh, apologetics. That doesn't call Vantillian, but um, sure. presuppositional apologetics is the formal name. And, um, you know, people sort of get a reputation if you don't have that one under your belt. You've actually, I mean, oftentimes our presbyteries will examine people for that. And it's a little bit hard sometimes if, if um, you haven't studied at a seminary that teaches it. You've got to bone up on your own. Yeah. No, I I don't think that the the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has quite the same phenomenon. Um because again, I, I think across the, the synod and across the seminaries that there's pretty broad agreement. Um and, and where there's disagreement, it's 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 not a big deal. For example, on you know apologetic methods. But but where where it might turn up is in some of the kind of cultural and and personal quirks. Uh, so I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the, there are faculty at each of the seminaries who 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 gain a reputation, who who accrue what what you might call disciples, and so you know the students who intentionally try to take a number of classes with them speak a certain way, use certain vocabulary, have certain emphases either in their preaching or in their pastoral practice. Um, Drink a certain whiskey, smoke a certain cigar. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it could include that. It could include that. <laughs> um, and, but I, I mean, I think there are some people who, who do an alternate route, who don't spend four years at a seminary, who, who might regret not having had that experience. Um, but, but I mean, in my own experience, I, I haven't heard a, a lot of you know, criticism coming from the other direction that that guy didn't have this experience um, or didn't have this particular course. Oh. And therefore, he's not you know, pulling his weight as a Lutheran pastor. Um, the, that might be out there, but I, I, I haven't heard it. I haven't come across it. Miles, what do you think about um, the lay of the land that, you know, in the enactment circles, um, as far as consistency of product, as it were, and if if priests have certain reputations because they've gone to certain seminaries, and well, yeah, it's, it's how does that play out? Well, I was as I was listening to Corey talk, I was kind of shocked. I was like, oh, it, you know, um, for all the variation, I'm sure someone who who lives in the LCMS sees uh, it seems that across what is it two and a half million people Corey, they're about yeah um that there's still a remarkable amount of consistency um and i think some of that's institutional i also wonder if some of it's ecclesiological um acna is blessed and cursed with bishops um and a good bishop really imprints a certain uh, t- type of personality on his diocese 
and the guys who are coming into that diocese are going to sort of be, be his guys. You mentioned sort of seminarians being disciples of certain um, professors. And I think that plays out in ACNA too. So if you're lucky like me, I have a good bishop and his imprint is something I'm thankful for. It works out great. Um, if you don't have one and you're someone who's sort of from the, the other end of the communion stuck in a parish that's sort of the the other end that you don't want to be in, it makes it a lot more difficult. And I think the ends of Anglican churchmanship are wider. We're only about 145,000 people, but those two ends in that 145,000 are, are really quite disparate. And so um, the question for, I think, the Anglican communion going forward is what does it actually mean to have a theological identity and how do you do that with having guys who are coming from so many different types of seminary backgrounds? Um, you know, even if I were to line up a lot of our guys come from Gordon Conwell, they're going to have different dispositions on some pretty big things than say guys coming out of RTS guys coming out of Neshota. Um, and so I think, again, that's great in the sense of you get, a lot of different guys who can bring a lot of different type of giftings to the communion at the end of the day, though, how do you actually construct something that's solid and can actually breed its own priest? The LCMS does a good job. I think of, I'm using this word breeding here a little loosely, but breeding its own priest. Um, ACNA is too young to do that, but I'm not even sure it could do that even if it wanted to right now. Um, and again, the the reflection of the the complexion, excuse me, of conservative Anglicans is unusual. You have a lot of kind of conservative, sort of reformedish broad churchmen who end up on the same voting side as Anglo Catholics, with very different dispositions towards soteriology. Um, and so you may have someone who's kind of reformedish who ends up thinking more like a liberal on ecclesiological issues. Sorry, I can't talk. It was the vaccine. Um, <laughs> and, and and yet, you know, there's there's just different parts. And so I think every communion has that. Uh, the LCMS has it. The OP has it. But what's unusual is ACNA has it remarkably broadly in not that many people. Um, and so, you know, the LCMS is bigger than the Episcopal churches. Um, and so yet it, doesn't quite have, I think, the 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 wings, the disparity that ACNA has. So, Daryl, I don't know if that answers yeah. your question well, per se. I mean, but when it comes to um, the wings of uh, your communion, um, I mean, I would, I don't know what the cert- certificate in Anglican studies includes when it comes to liturgy. But do you see um, any kind of correlation between seminary education and high church, low church? Yeah, there, there is, is that more a function of the bishop as well? Um, you know, especially when you get uh, to the sort of the meat of the, the province, um, most of the guys who are going to come out of RTS, this is my limited experience, kind of shade high church. Hmm. They're not Anglo-Catholics, but they're going to kind of lean a bit more high church. Uh, they're going to be guys who are be more willing to vest. Um, and I think a lot of that just has to do with this kind of commitment to ecclesiology period, a commitment to the prayer book, a commitment to the formularies. Gordon Conwell tends to be looser on um, the gifts. So 
uh, you're not going to have as many classical cessationists, for example, at Gordon Conwell. So mm-hmm. that's where you're going to get uh, folks who, uh, you know, they're, they're not going to be as, you know, putting the screws to somebody on the formulary is going to be putting the screws to sort of following the prayer book exactly. And so because of that, they're probably a little bit looser on actually some liturgical questions as well. And there's a lot of people who say that looseness is really important, that looseness gives people accessibility to the communion that they might not have had otherwise. But you can see a little bit of a, of a breakdown. Uh, reformed guys who in the communion would call themselves reformed tend to shade a little bit more high church probably than the guys who would identify as uh, quote unquote charismatics, but that's not, it's not universal, but you can, you can see a little tendency there. So it, it and it's not the case that every, every priest would be wearing vestments then. No. Uh, yeah. You'd, you'd have some guys who would just wear a, a cassock uh, and a white surplus and a stole. Um, you have some guys who wear a stole over a polo shirt. Um, <laughs> you, you, you can find uh, that a lot of places you have guys who, uh, who don't even really vest. who will just wear a collar and a blazer and, you know, slacks. And so there's a, there's a lot of variety, um, but no and, one just, a, just in a coat and a tie. Uh, in ACNA, I don't know, but in Southern England, certainly in the church yeah. of England, you'll see that, um, right. in Southern England, the evangelical parishes, but prob- probably not a ton in ACNA itself. I mean, this this all points to the need at some point. And readers, you can uh, get on the edge of your seats for this one, but we should do a, a podcast or two, an episode or two about ecclesiology. Um, but we we won't go there for now. But it's it seems like it's coming up. Uh, it, it, just when talking about theological education in in the in the Presbyterian world, again, this is is in some ways a reflection of our polity, but. Um, it's it's really I don't think you can identify ministers so much by where they went to seminary. I mean, there's a certain emphasis at the different seminaries that you can see, but oftentimes the character of the uh, either the congregation um, is shaped by the session itself. People, the elders in the church who are calling the the ministers, um, or by the presbytery in each presbytery in our communion has a, um, again, different emphases. Um, maybe it's because of a majority of pastors in that particular presbytery. Um, but it's very hard to get away from our polity, I guess, in, um, in thinking about these things. So, um, do, I'm curious, how much do you think people in your, the people in the pew, the lady think about, the seminary world and theological education. And we need to support the seminaries. We want to have the professors in to come and guest preach or something. Um, how much awareness or, or consciousness do you think the seminaries have in, um, in your parishes or congregations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it. in the OPC, for instance, you know, because of our history, and ties to Westminster, whether especially Philadelphia, there's that's kind of in the imagination of, of people, although it's really declined. And I can imagine in parts of the PCA, that's the case with Reformed. Um, Covenant is, is it is the only denominational seminary among the in the conservative Presbyterian world, and yet I'm I'm not sure that it has that kind of hold on the laity. But I mean, I could imagine 
miles for you, it's it's not as great a hold, but for Corey, I could imagine with the LCMS, it's a pretty strong hold. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean, it's certainly not as strong as it used to be. Um, so I mean, we, we still have in the LCMS a, a pretty large uh, primary school system. And I, I remember when I was in eighth grade, you, you do your eighth grade class trip. And, and since I grew up in the Midwest, our eighth grade class trip was invariably to St. Louis. Um, you know, and we did the zoo and we did the arch and all that stuff. But, but of course, it, it always included a, a visit to the seminary. Um, you know, e- even if our pastor himself had graduated from Fort Wayne and, and wasn't a St. Louis guy. Um, so, I mean, that, that, that was um, we were aware of it. Um, but, but yeah, I don't, I don't know how much it's really in the consciousness of the parishioners, um, except and unless, you know, the, the local pastor himself is kind of intentionally attempting to cultivate that consciousness and, you know, reminding them that, you know what, these seminaries don't have money trees growing on their grounds. If, if, if we want another generation of pastors, maybe we ought to be, you know, sending some money their way. And maybe we ought to be identifying young men in our congregation who we, we will encourage to attend one of the seminaries. Um, I mean, being, being here in Hillsdale, it's a little bit different since, since our Fort Wayne seminary is only 90 minutes away. So the, you know, the couple of the congregations that I've been involved with here um, will regularly have you know, seminary professor come up and you know either preach on a Sunday morning or maybe do a presentation uh, in, in the Bible study hour or something like that. So I mean that that proximity I think heightens awareness. But yeah, despite there only being two seminaries and all of our pastors, almost all of our pastors coming through one of them, um, the, the the awareness of them is is probably not as high as it huh. should be. Daryl, I, I was thinking about this, and as Corey's described, kind of the way the LCMS relates to its um, its seminaries, I was thinking one one member of the NAPARC world kind of has a, a real symbiotic relationship with its seminary, and that's the ARP. Yeah. Um, Erskine really is a bigger part of the ARP than I think Covenant is of the PCA or even uh, the RP's seminaries in Pittsburgh, I think. Right. Um, and so in that sense, at least in one Presbyterian church, I mean, Erskine is, is a, sh- a big show in the ARP um, in the way. I don't know if any one seminary yeah. is in the Presbyterian world. And for a long time, the Episcopal church, Sewanee did have a, a big place mm. in the life of the, of the Episcopal, at least in the Southern churches. If you got a rector, they had probably gone to Sewanee at some point. Huh. You know, it- and that brings to mind another story related to seminary world. I think, and this isn't about the Anglicans, but it's about the former communion. I guess uh, general seminary is going to merge with Virginia yeah, seminary, I think, a, which um, is really pretty astounding in a way. Uh, but that's not sort of off off um, off our radar for for this. So, Miles, I mean, do, is there any kind of sense? Um, people in the pew in, in ACNA that they um, identify, know about seminary world, or is it the sort of like Corey was saying, it's geographical. If you're close to Gordon Conwell, you know about Gordon Conwell yeah. or. 
the the best way I can say it is the the one seminary that I I started attending Episcopal churches when I was in college, and so the one seminary you kind of knew the identity of was Neshota, and it was because it was recognizably Anglo-Catholic, um, and I, I don't know if people thought about Virginia Seminary or uh, you know the MA students at Sewanee or um, students coming out of the, the, the smaller seminaries of the Episcopal Church. But Neshota is one that, that had an identity, especially in conservative churches, because there was a good chance you were going to get someone from there, and there was a good chance you were going to be mm-hmm. Anglo-Catholic, and you were probably more thrilled about one of those than, than the other. And so I think for, because ACNA is full of folks who didn't grow up uh, like me, who didn't grow up, who weren't reared in the Episcopal Church, if they do know about the seminaries, it's probably a fairly, and I don't use this pejorative, fairly kind of cartoonish, fairly reductionistic understanding mm. of, of the seminaries. Um, and since only really Neshota has a continuing imprint of any size from TEC, now in ACNA, that's probably the only one people would yeah. really, really recognize. And, and that, that sort of, Corey, I'll be curious what you think of this, but it seems that the, that the conservative Presbyterian denominations like the PCA and the OPC, mm-hmm. th- their existence is bound up with the formation of a seminary. For, mm. for the PCA, the Southern Conservatives, it was reformed in Jackson. For the OPC, it was Westminster in Philadelphia. Um, and it strikes me that the, say, the Lutheran Church, your communion, it's it's because it's ethnic, because it's sort of organic migration, families growing up in this. It's just sort of perpetuated from generation to generation. It is not as much dependent, certainly on any sing, single educational institution, um, certainly not seminaries in the way that they form. If you tell the history of any conservative Presbyterian uh, denomination, you almost have to start with a seminary. And, that's, and that I don't know that that would in any way come close to um, doing justice to the LCMS. Well, I mean, in in, in some sense, it does uh, because you know the, the the first wave of you know, Saxons who made their way up the Mississippi to you know, Perry County, Missouri, right outside of St. Louis. Um, I mean, the 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 formation of the seminary and the formation of the the synod you know, went more or less hand in hand. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know that that's always remembered outside of, you know, clerical circles who, you know, attended the seminary and and know the history. Um, But, but yeah, I mean, there, there, there was a a close connection um, between the foundation of the seminary and the foundation of the synod. Well, the other difference, too, is is these seminaries, Presbyterian ones, were formed in opposition to liberalism. And the Missouri Synod obviously was conservative and um, confessional in ways that were oppositional. But it was coming at a time when there wasn't – I mean, there was an Americanist wing of American Lutheranism that Missouri Synod was standing apart from. So maybe – you know, maybe there's more similarity there than I really yeah. would have – yeah, and, and some and some of the opposition was was mm. was not so much to kind of Americanist Lutheranism as, as it was to liberalism back in the old world, right. and and since at the 
time of the, the founding of Synod and of the, the first seminary, everyone was still speaking German. They were still very dependent on clergy coming from Germany. Huh. Um, and, and if you're not sure what you're going to get coming from Germany, maybe the best option is to, to grow your own here in St. Louis. I also think OPC, so much identity with Gresham Mason, who was a part of Westminster, and then with the LCMS, Walther. I don't know if he was directly responsible for creating the seminary in St. Louis. I think he had some, yeah. something to do with it. Yeah. So you, have the, you have these two figures right. that both communions can kind of look to and be like, yeah, you know, sort of a founding father figure. I think that's another weakness for ACNA right now. There is no sort of founding father. Um, so, you know, a unitive founding father that a seminary, you know, education will hold up um, either. So that's another thing. I don't know if that's something that's absolutely necessary to synodical unity, but it's something that at least the OP and, and the LCMS are able to point to and say, hey, on some level, that guy is is important to us and you're going to learn about him at seminary. So the um, to make the transition to the other topic we were going to talk about, which has to do with women's ordination. Um, Corey, are there many female students at at the uh, LCMS seminaries? Are there any? Uh, the, there are. Uh, the, there aren't a lot. And, and if I remember correctly, the, the first few um, showed up when, when I was studying at the seminary in St. Louis. Um, we, uh, LCMS has a long history of, of deaconesses. Um, and typically, the deaconesses have been trained either at Valparaiso University or at the Concordia University right outside of Chicago and River Forest. Um, but the, the, the seminaries um, offer tracks for deaconess certification for you know, those women who might not attend a Lutheran undergraduate institution, but who still might want to become deaconesses. Um, so that, that started, I believe, uh, in, in the 90s. Um, and so when I was on campus, there were maybe two or three women on campus uh, studying in a Master of Arts track, uh, which could allow them to then be certified as deaconesses. Hmm. Or perhaps they just wanted to, to, to study academic theology um, beyond the undergraduate level and they, they thought St. Louis uh, was a good place to do it. Just quickly, without getting into the weeds of polity, what do deaconesses do? Yeah, <laughs> uh, the, the, they they would probably shoot me for saying this, but 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 I often describe them as as you know, Lutheran <laughs> Lutheran nuns. Um, I mean, they, they they do they do the kinds of things, uh, for example, in a parish. Um, that might be uh, teaching in a day school, teaching Sunday school, supervising music programs, right. okay. uh, some of the, the mercy work of visiting people in hospitals, uh, the, the homebound, uh, those, those sorts of, of ministries. Um, How many, uh, so at a LCMS um, parish school, would, what would be the percentage of the female women teaching how many of them would be deaconesses? Would it be required that they be deaconesses? No, no, not at all. Um, and, and in fact, I mean, even though we have a long history of the deaconess program, it's, it, it's never been a, a large phenomenon. Hmm. Um, so, 
I mean, teaching in our day schools, um, th- th- there are in fact very, very few yeah. deaconesses. Interesting. Yeah. So Miles, this is all setting you up for what's, what's the sta- state of women's ordination in the, um, in the ACNA world? I think it was something that the communion kind of inherited from the Episcopal church. Um, and I think just now you're starting to f- see unified, unified um, voices questioning how we can remain a unified province with allowing two separate positions on something that's so big. I remember years ago, a bishop asked, how can you ask a parish to, in good faith, um, have someone serving who they aren't sure is actually a priest. Um, And so that's something that's inherited from the Episcopal church. There's a new book that's just come out uh, on the question and with the written by really important voices in the province. And so I think ultimately um, it's, it's the Achilles heel of ACNA right now. Um, We have two separate positions on something that's really fundamental um, to the, to the unity uh, of, of any given province. Um, It's, it's something that uh, whether, how, how soon it's going to actually become a fight. um, I I don't know. I know in uh, a lot of dioceses it's allowed, but not practiced regularly. Um, but as in the case of, of deacons and some of the, the, the Napark churches, it's allowed but not practiced, or deaconesses in, in the Napark churches, it's allowed but not practiced regularly. In ACNA, it seems like it will be practiced semi-regularly in one diocese, and then n- not a sniff of it whatsoever in mm. another, even if they have the same position on it. I think that's where kind of the fact that you have really diocese of affinity is right right is is a weakness you know um well this bishop he inherited this position from the previous holder of the see and so well he's he's not going to nuke it but he's certainly not going to well, he's not going to uh, uh, ordain any other women in his diocese mm. he may not be kicking them out but um he's not going to ordain anyone else and so there's there's a lot of different ways that bishops deal with it. There's a lot of different dispositions. Um, and so it's, it's something that I think has to be worked out uh, for the unity of the province. And my guess is it would have to be worked out um, on, on the proposition. It would have to be uh, of women's ordination. It would have to be negative because otherwise there's not a real way for ACNA to exist. Um, the, the, the question, if you want to be a, a, a woman, a, a priest and an Anglican, the Episcopal church is there for you. Um, it's big. It has money. Now you may not have many people in your church, but you can fill that office. Um, Acnes seems to be doing something different in the Episcopal church. And so I'm not sure why someone would want to pursue that, except if they come from an evangelical background and aren't really ready to be Episcopalian. They kind of want to be evangelical, but they won't, they don't want all the, the hoity-toity stuff, and so uh, they they want to be, I, I don't know, some sort of uh, halfway house between uh, evangelicalism and, and the liberal mainline. So, well, wouldn't though um, sex be an issue? Why you might not go to the Episcopal Church, even though you want to be a female, 
you, you're a woman and you want to be a priest. I mean, so you don't, you, you think perhaps homosexual marriage or um, other sorts of positions in the Episcopal church would be a, a problem. So where do you go if you want to be an Anglican priest? Well, you go to the Anglican church. Yeah, And I think some of this is, is you're right. It's, it's sociology. We want to hold kind of what is some sort of broad evangelical, um, theological distinction so we we have a, a quote-unquote traditional ethic of of marriage and sex but we have a sort of an evangelical understanding of ecclesiology um, and i'm using that differently than anglican um, evangelical is this kind of wide open sort of i mean it's based on revival right so if you have the gifts hmm. you deserve to talk <laughs> um and and so I, you know, I, we went through Whitfield and Edwards with the class today, uh, and <laughs> and or yesterday. And so that's it, right? If you've got the gifting, you deserve a microphone. If you've got the affections and the enthusiasm, we want to let you talk. And I think ACNA's um, more adjacent to evangelicalism in that regard. So yeah, we might we might not have the homosexuality issue. We might not have a big problem about what marriage is, but we nonetheless. We have enthusiasm, and enthusiasm means we're gonna we're gonna cut some corners about ecclesiology. Um, this, this this is an interesting point from from the kind of a Lutheran perspective because one one of the you know, in inter Lutheran discussions about this inevitably it comes up that those Lutheran bodies, you know, the, the the Lutheran Church in Sweden, for example, or the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the the mainline Lutheran body here in the states. Uh, you know, inevitably, those churches that started women's ordination at some point in the 20th century, um, by the time we get to you know now the first quarter of the 21st century, um, they've blessed same-sex marriage and and, and even the, the ordination of of gay candidates. Um, and so, so one camp wants to say. You can't mention that. That's a slippery slope argument, and, and therefore it's it's fallacious. Uh, and the other side wants to say, well, yeah, maybe not, because both of those allowances require you know sort of reading scripture a certain way. Um, so it, it's it's bound up not only with ecclesiology but also with with hermeneutics. Um, you know, given the fact that female ordination is a relatively recent phenomenon um, that suggests that that you know even formerly conservative or evangelical churches are are reading the scripture in a relatively new way hmm. Hmm. so daryl what what about you know what, what about in the presbyterian world you, well, you don't have or female clergy and, and you don't have deaconesses so so are there women at the the reform seminaries that feed into the opc uh, yes. I mean, not that, not that in the OPC, they don't, they don't really have places to go. Um, <clears throat> we, we still have, um, a number of people that would object to women teaching even adult Sunday school, um, teaching children Sunday school would be fine. Yeah. Um, and generally our churches are small enough or so small that there aren't lots of positions that a, a woman could even get a part-time job other than as say, say church administrator. Um, <clears throat> we have lately had a um, 
issue with it with some men who have t- objected to a, a woman in our church who's written several books about theology, biblical interpretation. Um, generally speaking, all of them uh, conservative. I haven't. I've used one of the books myself, even in adult education in our church. Um, and and so, I think the teaching material is generally been conservative but there's an issue of whether a woman should be doing something like this and this is actually something i think we should come back to in, in another episode to think about the role of the lady in our in our um laity not lady laity <laughs> in our communions um but um I, I there i could i can well understand women in the opc at least thinking there aren't many outlets for them um, beyond potluck suppers preparation, <laughs> uh, bulletin preparation or something in the PCA. It's, it's different, bigger congregations, more urban congregations. And miles knows this world better than I probably, um, it does seem like there are more spots for seminary graduates to go and be the director of Christian education, at least for the young, for the young people and children. There are many more, multi-staff um, churches in the PCA where a female seminary student could go and find, find work. Uh, but so that's just a big difference between the OPC and the PCA when it, and it comes in some ways just down to size and money. And I think some of this question really goes back to what church is, what church is doing. Um, I, I know that it, at least on the conservative side of ACNA, you could call it the traditionalist side. Um, there's probably not as much of a push for women to be quote unquote involved precisely because there's not as much of a push for men to be quote unquote mm. involved. And so I think if your understanding of church's word, and especially the sacrament, the kind of, the only person who really needs to be quote quote involved is, is the rector, is whoever's consecrating. And this is one of the reasons why Anglo-Catholics have, have really towed the line so well, at least in the United States, on um, you know, what it is to have a kind of a transcendent understanding of, of a male priesthood is Christly because they said, well, there's nothing else that's important hmm. except for consecration. And we know that only a dude can do that. And so that's that's the, the the climax of the service and so we don't really need to talk about people's quote unquote i'm using air quotes now involvement <laughs> um and so and i think i think that's probably that way at least in the, the high church side of the lcms too I, I don't know Corey. you can probably speak to that but that's at least a perception is if the sacrament is really important and if we take kind of a traditional view on what a, what a minister or priest is doing we don't even need to have the conversation per se. Um, yes and no. I, um, I mean, there, there's certainly, and I don't want to mis, mischaracterize you know, high church Anglicanism, but I mean, there's certainly less of an emphasis on any kind of, you know, ontological priestly status conferred with, with ordination um, in, in Lutheranism. But it, it comes down to, you know, the office of the ministry is, is instituted by Christ for the application of the means of grace. Um, 
and as instituted, it was instituted to be fulfilled by men who, who I mean, yes, are, you know, representatives of Christ. And, and so their, their maleness is important. Um, but we don't, we don't think of ordination as, as imparting a kind of character, you know, the, the, the way that, that Roman Catholics might. Um, which which character just couldn't be imparted to you know, certain people. Um, so so yes and no, I suppose, depending on how, how one spends okay. it. I mean, it's interesting too, Miles, what you were saying about consecration in, in the OPC. For instance, we also throw in the kicker of the invocation and the uh, benediction so that, say, a candidate for the ministry, a licentiate, or even an intern who is, um, you know, interning with a pastor for the summer and is going to preach, we would call it, uh, and there's debate in our circles about how high church you want to be about this. Some would say it's, it's not preaching, it's exhortation. Um, but we have to have a, a, an ordained guy to do the invocation and to do the benediction. Mm-hmm. And if there's no one there, that, that licentiate or seminary stu- student can do it, but he's got to pray the invocation and he's got to pray a benediction, but not, you know, raise hands or give the formal thing. So, you know, and equally apply to the, um, to the Lord's supper as well. They couldn't administer that. Can a ruling elder consecrate in the OP? No. Okay. No. We only get to touch the tray and pass it. (laughs) We, we, we have a similar thing in, um, you know, in, in our, Lutheran hymnal, Lutheran service book, uh, you know, the, the benediction is, is printed there in two different forms. Huh. You know, one, if you're, if you're ordained, you, you get to, you know, sort of announce the blessing. Um, but say the, the, the congregation has no pastor. And so the service is just being read by, by a lay elder. Uh, then, then you read the one that is structured as a prayer. Yeah. Yeah. And Daryl, I wonder too, just a, a passing thought, how much of the kind of um, the question of participation for women in church is a change from viewing worship as as um, something that's sort of timeless and transcendent to something that's programmatic, um, which seems to be something that kind of we all dance around as we talk about these things. Um, but, you know, how often did churches before... 1940 have a you know minister for family and youth and you know babies um right probably not a lot so right and that also gets into even into the worship server itself i mean service itself it's bit it's it's we're a ways from the seeker sensitive movement and contemporary worship in the 70s 80s 90s but you know, there was that argument that was going on that the service people couldn't participate in the service because we were just there passively receiving either the preaching or whatever, even though Protestants sing a lot of hymns, you know, and there didn't seem to be a sense that in hearing a sermon, you're actually active and you're participating or that in receiving the supper or observing a baptism, you are actually being active. You're not just passively watching um but i we have gone on for a while this is not the uh, most elegant of 
conclusions <laughs> to a podcast, but uh, we are out of time. Um, and I'll s- bring it to a close, but if you guys want to say anything as a last word, go ahead. Well, uh, this, I mean, this is perhaps something we can come back to at a later date, but, but the issue of quote unquote involvement is interesting because uh, this, this involvement of the laity more and more in the service and in the public aspects of the service seems to me to parallel a decreasing involvement in some of the, the parachurch activities, mm. oh. you know, keep, keeping the lawn mowed or you know, whatever the case might be. Um, so I, I, I wonder if it's just a, a matter of the, the laity who have always been involved in certain respects um, wanting or being asked to be involved in, in different ways. Um, right. And, and I, I don't know what would explain that, but it, it seems to me a, an observable phenomenon. And I'll just echo what Corey said. I wonder how much just the increasing specialization of society in general has changed how people relate, relate to church. Um, uh, you know, we, some people may call it gifting. Some people may call it vocational ability. And what, what does that mean for the fact that somebody does need to, to mow the lawn and trim the bushes around the sanctuary and clean inside, et cetera, et cetera. So. And, uh, and some of that too, I think also uh, involves the way <clears throat> church members who are adults, uh, the way that they were exposed to church life as kids. I mean, mm-hmm. my, my mm-hmm. own case probably, your cases as well, your parents were involved and you were going along with them to church. And so, and, you know, you kind of wondered if you really had to yet again, but it was just part of life. So that's the way you do church is by participating in these things and helping out with various projects, clean up or whatever at the church. Um, And if you're not used to that and you think of the church as largely going to the service and occasionally maybe a Bible study or a, potluck meal you know your your perception perhaps you haven't been enculturated in congregational life the way some others have yeah all right i'm going to call this to an end great to be with you guys and uh we'll talk again soon take care thanks <laughs>